Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. All the coffee that we buy, we, we send a wire straight to the goddamn farm. You know, we pay for all the logistics that takes it to go from there up to us. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. Noah Hopkins is the production manager at Dark Matter Coffee's mothership facility located in Chicago's Westtown neighborhood. We discuss how Noah applies methods of building and balancing flavor in brewing to roasting coffee, enhancing Dark Matter's barrel aging, dry hopping, and cast conditioning programs. The wider world of beverage is an inspiration for Noah and his team. Coffee's fermented with different strains of brewer's yeast and even conditioned on Lamort, a Chicago delicacy, being a few examples. Collaboration with breweries is frequent and substantial. We discuss a variety of manners in which Noah and his team work with breweries of all sizes to create unique coffee beers. We also touch on the relationship between coffee production, environment, and fair business practices. We discuss the recent forest fires on Atitlan Volcano, the home to San Geronimo Miramar Farm, Dark Matter's extended family in Guatemala. Noah paints a picture of the farm, emphasizing the importance of sustainability and climate change's impact on suppliers and farmers. A link to Dark Matter Coffee's GoFundMe supporting relief efforts and those living in areas affected by fires on Atitlan Volcano can be found in the episode notes. Let's dive and get heavy. Noah, welcome to Heavy Hops. We're really stoked to have you with us today. Great to be here. Very excited to... Um sit down and chat with you guys. Excellent. Um, when you and I first met, we met in the context of working at Local Option and in the in the beer world. Uh, how did your kind of interest in beverage, whether it's like coffee or beer, uh, how did all that, what were the foundations of that? Um, I don't, I can't really particularly remember. Um, I've always been very interested in, in beverage. Um, my first love uh, was coffee. Uh, I remember going and drinking mochas at Higher Grounds Cafe in South Bend. When I was 14 or 15, we'd walk there from my dad's house. Um, and I ended up working there in high school and part of college and then uh when i went to depaul uh university as you also went to um i worked at starbucks unfortunately um and yeah i mean r- during that college experience you know i drank my fair share of bush and whatnot but um also started with my meager amount of money uh finding better beer, mostly imports at the time. So um, the the most notable that I remember drinking was uh, Schneider Weiss. Um, and all my friends thought I was crazy. Uh, 
so yeah, I, I've definitely always had a, um, I don't know if it's always been an equal love, but a large love for both of those beverages and others. Um, yeah. And so then I went on and worked for Intelligentsia when I graduated. And then after that, went to Local Option, where we shared our mutual experiences and then on to dark matter. Yeah, I think in those uh, days of meager extra funds, we even frequented the same store that uh, would sell <laughs> underage folks. Yes, I, I don't, uh, Elizabeth's, right? <laughs> yes, the fine establishments of, of many moons ago would uh, would sell to uh, folks of, <laughs> folks not of the age, yeah. <laughs> yeah, me and my friends used to uh, trade who had to go in and buy because the proprietor, he hadn't known everybody was underage, but would make you talk to him for like an hour. <laughs> and so they're like, no, it's your turn. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's what I would get at, at Elizabeth's was uh, Schneider, Schneider Weiss. What was, uh, what was it about like the, because I, you know, I think for a lot of people it was similar. It was like, German beers, whether it was things like Schneider or like uh, export lagers as well is something that a lot of people point to. Um, what was it that attracted you like towards those brands toward, because there was like American craft that we could find a little bit too at that point. What was it that, uh, that took you to those brands? I think that everybody has to have like a, an entry beer and you know, the, the intrigue was flavor and very um, unique flavors that when you're used to light lager macro bullshit is, you know, the, they're very unique. And, uh, you know, there was American craft beer, but it wasn't um, really uh, as pronounced at that time, you know, I worked at, I also, when I worked at Starbucks, I also worked at Pequod's Pizza. And um, one of my also early uh, beer uh, light bulbs was drinking Chimay Blue that they would let us, like we'd have a really good Saturday night and Tony and Docs would pop a bottle of that and that blew my mind. Um, so it, it just kind of was that foray the imports were much more prevalent at that point in time. You know, we had anchor Liberty on draft at the bar, which was probably the first pale ale I ever drank, but just, I, I feel like the mystique and intrigue of import beer and beer from Germany and Belgium, uh, was way, was much sexier, I guess, at the time, especially in those times when there wasn't much American beer. And my thought of American beer was, you know, piss lager. Yeah. Uh, and when you started uh, at Local Option as well, you uh, were interested in home brewing too. Um, where did that kind of fit into the trajectory of you being interested in, uh, in beverage and working at Intelligentsia and then finding yourself in the service industry? Um, well, it was kind of a clumsy foray back into um, 
beverage. You know, I never would say I was super stoked about being a uh, bartender, server, whatnot. But, um, you know, I went to local option, local option um, with the intent of us opening a uh, cafe, a coffee shop in the morning that I would run. And then Tony would run the bar at night. And um, it just kind of so happened that my knowledge of beer was better than everyone else, uh, everyone else's except for Tony at the time. And um, I was organized and motivated and quickly became the, you know, basically the manager of the bar. So I kind of just naturally let the, the coffee stuff go under the rug. Um, and it was very early on that I met our friend JD, whose um, brew system I still own and have has been the basis uh, of all the beer I've made. So it, we started brewing with him and it just naturally took off um, very quickly. Uh, yeah, it definitely did. And it came to also kind of launching uh, launching a brand and uh, the local option brand and you working, you know, not only bar shifts there, but also developing recipes, facilitating relationships to brew those beers. Um, you know, what was it like to kind of develop these recipes at home and then take them to a brewery in Maryland or a brewery in Michigan and say, Hey, let's, let's make this, uh, how did all that kind of work mechanically? Um, I mean, it was, you know, thinking back on it, it didn't seem weird or stressful. It was just happened very organically and naturally, you know, having the, um, the bar as a platform where all these different people could come. You forgot about Kentucky, by the way. Uh, um, yes, I definitely forgot about Kentucky. Shame on me. And I forgot <laughs> about, yeah, many things. Oops. <laughs> um, but I mean, I would say that, you know, that relationship with uh, Sam and Jerry was definitely um, one of the biggest springboards. Um, uh, but yeah, so people would come to the bar and we would, you know, shoot the shit and, uh, you know, Tony being the the salesman that he is would somehow convince people that it was a good idea to have us come and make beers with them. Uh, that would be bar, you know, bar brewery collaborations and unique one-off products. And um, so it was, it was very fun at that time because it was, um, I would brew these test batches in my garage and then take it to the brewery and uh, we would tweak it and brew it on a larger scale. So it really, um, it was a very strong structure for going in and starting the, the eventual contract brew structure that later developed. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And so from, you know, home brewing and then taking these recipes to the brewery, was there ever a point where you got uh, technical training in this or was it all kind of, test at home, bring to the brewery, tweak with the brewers there and see what comes out. Yeah, no, no technical training. I mean, um, our friend JD was, uh, had been a home brewer for lots of years and then went to Siebel and he was the one that basically 
showed me the nuts and bolts of brewing. And then I just started reading as much as I could and researching and uh, just kind of, it just kind of came naturally. So, um, you know, and I had, a like I said, the, having those relationships and doing these collaboration beers, having the mentorship of Jerry Nagy and Mr. Wiggs of the Brian nature um, and all these other, you know, uh, all these other people uh, definitely accelerated my knowledge and abilities much faster than probably would have happened otherwise. And when you were starting to homebrew, were there certain breweries that you were taking inspiration from or certain brewers that you looked towards when you were making recipes? Or did you kind of go off on your own and try and, you know, create things that you thought were uh, unique and interesting in your own? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was sort of a mixed bag. Um, there are definitely beers that were um, inspirational uh, to me and a lot of those being brewed by the people that I was, um, being exposed to, you know, dark horse crooked tree was a pretty mind blowing, um, IPA to me at the time. Um, Surly Furious was, I definitely made a beer that was inspired, um, by that. Um, I would say that another beer that was also inspired by Surly was, uh, the, the morning wood um, was inspired by coffee bender, but for the opposite reason in that uh, having such an affinity for both beverages, I found it offensive how coffee forward that beer was and that it lacked any balance and needed, uh, there needed to be coffee beers needed to taste like beer. And so uh, I made that beer in response to that beer. I mean, it's a great beer but it's just tastes like you're drinking a, uh, iced coffee to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I remember, you know, one of the things that was unique about morning wood was the fact that at that time there were so many, uh, so many beers in the market that were heavy on roast and then the coffee would have a roast character as well. And some of the nuance of the coffee would get lost. Um, and another thing that I remember learning in the process was that the methods for uh, introducing coffee to beer at the time were uh, relatively unrefined compared to today. Um, would you, would you, do you still feel, you know, looking back now that that's a fair assessment? I, I definitely think that's a fair assessment. I think um, uh, the way and the, the respect that coffee deserves in beer has changed. Um, it's always been, I, I feel this is just opinion, I guess, but that it has been um, underrepresented, underrespected in the beer community and culinary community in general. You know, you have these Michelin star restaurants and they just, you know, you have this amazing meal and then they serve dog shit coffee afterwards. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I think that there just need to be exposure and uh, uh, education and collaboration really has changed that over the, you know, the past decade. Um, and uh, funny enough, I since we're still talking about Morningwood, or we're talking about Morningwood, 
it's uh, a funny segue into uh, my uh, how I became to know dark matter. Um, so when we first started doing morning wood, uh, I used blue bottle coffee because having come from come from intelligentsia, it was intelligentsia, blue bottle, and Stumptown were the big players in the game. They were all still really tiny comparatively to what they've become now. But I was just like, this is the great coffee. So this is what I'm going to use in this beer. Um, and I, I don't even know if I wholesaled it. I think I paid too much for that coffee. But nonetheless, um, was that local option. And Rob Diaz, Jesse's brother, came in and was like, what are you doing using that stuff? You need to use local coffee. You should use my brother's coffee. And I was like, okay, whatever, man. He's like, you need to go meet them. And so uh, they were still at Star Lounge at the time, roasting upstairs, basically on the back deck. Um, and I met Aaron, who is now the um, head of roasting, who's become a dear friend and my boss, technically. Um, he is my boss, but... Uh, and he showed me the roasting process and uh, it's unglamorous nature, just like beer. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we kicked off a really good relationship. And so I started buying the coffee for Morningwood from Dark Matter and um, started hanging out with those guys uh, quite a bit. Uh, before we jump full on into the, uh, into the world of coffee, should we have a uh, beverage? For sure. Yeah. So um, I know uh, Sam's got something special and you may, uh, Noah, actually be able to regale us with a tale of this brewery. Um, <laughs> do you, what do you have, uh, Sam? Mm. I'm drinking the uh, XL Pale Ale by Jadola. Ah. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. First new beer by them in quite a while. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um Fantastic, though. I know we were drinking this a little while back, Alexi, but it's got, you know, a very light hay kind of straw body. That lemon zest really shines through. And then there's just that classic Belgian yeast profile that I'm just a huge sucker for. Noah, you were you able to visit Dodola on any of your trips to Belgium? Yes. I think uh, also we should call out an RIP for... Um, from for mom yes yes for um, mom she, absolutely she just passed recent chris's mom just passed recently um an amazing woman she was uh probably near 90 when we were there uh nearly a decade ago when we did our brewery tour and uh she gave us the brewery tour um which was the most amazing brewery tour i've ever been on uh just so cool uh their process um still cool shipping their wort uh going into open fermentation and then uh log the lagering tanks that you see in all the belgian breweries that are built into the wall still using them um you know at the time i would imagine it's still that way but chris was the only permanent employee and had people that would um come help him on bottling days, which that machine was something to see, um, as well. But, uh, yeah. Uh, if, it, if anyone ever gets the chance to go to 
uh, Western Belgium, you have to go to that brewery and uh, pay to visit. That was also the um, trip where Tony and I brewed with Urban at Struess and I uh, drowned a VW Golf in the middle of the night. Please go into detail. <laughs> Regal us. <laughs> so it was one of the worst rainstorms that had hit the area in some 25 years. And um, there were huge power outages. And we were supposed to brew the next day. Uh, we went to a beer festival at Elvine. And then we we're supposed to brew, I believe, the next day. And they had no power. So we just ended up going to the pub and having a couple beers. And then um, we had a uh, hotel room down in Pulpering, which was down in the valley in the lowlands. Uh, and even though there was a like a Airbnb farmhouse that um, Lori and Tyler and people from the Louisville beer store at the time and now Holy Grail were staying at, uh, but we're driving down this road. It's like midnight one in the morning and we can't like, you know, it's early in GPS and it's telling me to turn at all these streets to go down to Pulpering and they're all flooded out. There's road blockers saying you can't go there. So I just keep going and going and going. And I'm like, we're never going to make it there. We find a street and it looks like it's not like there's just a little bit of water at the bottom. And we're like, oh, this, this looks good like let's go around the roadblock and go this way down this little farm road and so i go i get through the water it's not that bad and we're like all right sweet this is great um and then about a mile into this one lane road there's another puddle well not a puddle and it's like well we can either sleep in this car in the middle of this field and you know or we can try to go for it. And so we went for it. Um, it got deeper and deeper. The car stopped. Uh, we got out into rushing water, basically. Somehow, just through sheer will, like pushed it halfway up out of the water onto a hill. And a farmer um, on a tractor sees us, was helping some of the locals like um, with their sellers and helping with the flooding and Wayne got his minivan and drove us to Pulpering. Uh, we drove past West, West Flader and like, we would have never made it anyway. He went through two puddles that or two things of water that I would have still got stuck in. So we end up getting there at like three in the morning. Uh, and yeah, and then Urban came and got us the next day, and we went to a hop farm, which was amazing. And then him and his son-in-law uh, towed the car with just, like, some crappy rope back to <laughs> the brewery. Uh, and then when the tow truck came to get it, Urban's telling this guy in Flemish, he's like, oh, it's just from, it's been sitting here all night. There's nothing wrong with this car. It's just from the flooding, it can't, like, or from the rain, it can't start. And the guy picks it up on his tow truck and it just like like so much water starts gushing out of like every part of the car and the guy's like you guys are lying to me <laughs> like there's this is bullshit uh so yeah that was uh that's how that happened 
Uh, spring showers in in Belgium definitely. Uh, if you go, if uh, ABC happens again, um, you know, be mindful of the weather. I suppose. <laughs> yes. Um, cool. And I think so. Uh, we also have some beverages ourselves. If uh, if I'm gathering and remembering correctly, um, uh, you were uh, very generous, Noah, and. Uh, lent me, uh, which you will not get back, a bottle of uh, Moore's Petro, a collaboration with Voodoo Brewing. Um, there's a special sort of process that goes into uh, producing the coffee uh, for this beer that I've tried to talk about with some eloquence on the show. Uh, I think it was like one of the last ones of last year with Stane and it, uh, it failed miserably. So we're going to have to talk about that one, um, at some point here, but also, uh, you have something uh, as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So I also, uh, I have a cafe deep by, by Rev brewing. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, these are both beers that you've, uh, uh that dark matter has contributed the coffee for um, when uh, I guess like there's a lot of different ways that coffee can be introduced into beer. Um, at what point, you know, did this kind of become something that uh, you and dark matter were pretty committed to doing like building out lots of partnerships with breweries? Like how did that all kind of come about? Um. Well, Dark Matter started quite a few years prior to me coming on um, with Half Acre and uh, doing the coffee for Big Hugs. Um, I think this last year was, uh, I feel really stupid for not remembering, but year 11 or 12. Um, it was one of the two. Yeah, I think it was year 11. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so there's there was many years of of big hugs um, as far as coffee beer is concerned, um, and then I think the year prior to me starting uh, Dark Lord uh, Three Floyds Dark Lord started having uh, our coffee in it, uh, but I th think my previous relationships definitely was a springboard for more of those um, sort of collaborations to happen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all just same as with uh, beer collaborations. It's all relationship based and typically it's a, it's a product of um, knowledge sharing and um, you know, just com camaraderie and, enjoying each other's company. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's been fun to see dark matters, coffees kind of make their way into so many different beers that are produced locally and, you know, being fortunate to know a lot of the brewers and to know you myself, like hearing all the stories about how the coffee, the coffee's added is really, really cool because it seems like in, in a lot of ways, no one's really doing it the same way. There are so many different specifications that the breweries have of, or protocols that they have for adding adjuncts or uh, that they want to leave something up to you in a way, as far as like 
what you think is going to be the best thing. And then of course there's also the actual like selection. So I suppose like let's, maybe we can use uh cafe Deeth as our like case study. So tell us a little bit about how you work with revolution kind of from start to finish with that, uh, with the coffee selection and then the addition. Yeah. So, um, like you're saying, there's a lot of, lot of different ways that coffee can be introduced, you know, in the early times people used to put it in the boil or in the mash and other really nasty ways. Um, but I think that it's come a long way and, uh, to your point, there are a lot of breweries that, you know, they have a way they do it and that's how they do it. And we have uh, little to no involvement um, aside from providing our amazing coffee. Uh, and then there are other search situations where, um, uh, such as Rev, where they have their method due to their um, the, their production method. Um, and so we don't really have much to say with how it's introduced, but we do have a strong part in the selection. And so that's something that has made that um, project and partnership fun. Uh, Marty from Rev is a amazing dude and a terrific brewer. And I think his barrel aging program is second to none. Uh, but above all that, his um, inclusivity and thirst for knowledge and, um, you know, uh, wanting to make the best beer and have us have a say in it and has been really, um, really fun. So every time we make that beer, uh, we'll bring, we'll basically whittle it down to like four or five coffees and then they'll extract them into a howler or growler. And then we will sit down with um, four or five of their brewers and then four or five of us, um, whether it be me uh, and Kelly, who's our QC manager or Aaron, director of coffee or whomever. And we'll just blind taste, do a double blind tasting, write down our impressions and discuss it. And, kind of through consensus and um, uh, conversation come up with either a clear winner or we'll figure out that we're going to do a blend or whatever the case may be. But um, it's always uh, fun and educational and um, has created a really good, really good product. Mm -hmm. And on your side of things, have you, as Dark Matter, ever done a special roast for a brewery collaboration where, um, you know, you can't normally get it at the uh, Dark Matter or something that you don't normally do at the Mothership? Yeah. So, I mean, it wouldn't be so much as I, I think uh, we have a pretty tight, like, roast profile that we kind of stick to. So it's more about blending um, so there's definitely lots of different blends, like the, um, this blend for, uh, Cafe Deeth, we don't do, we've never released as a, like, uh, production blend roasts. Uh, so it's only been in their, in their beer. And then like for the release day, 
when they release it at the brewery, we'll come by with uh, a keg and some hot drip of that coffee so that people can drink the beer and the blend side by side. Um, and then that's about it. Mm-hmm. And how, just because, you know, it's the most Chicago thing you could do, how did the uh, Malort collaboration come about? <laughs> um, I think it basically we become friends with CH and uh, a lot of the people there. Um, and so just, again, just sort of a natural organic uh, relationship and friendship. Um, we started doing this process um, where we, we call it cast conditioning beans. So uh, a lot of people know about barrel aging beans where you take the green coffee and put it in a barrel for X amount of time. And it soaks up the some of the liquid and the essence of the barrel. Um, we also applied that principle to basically taking stainless steel um, vessels, AKA kegs, if you will, mostly, and putting different liquids, spirits in them and pressurizing it and seeing what the outcome is. And uh, that one was kind of one of the more mind blowing ones because it was almost a joke to start being like, oh, this is good, Malort, it's gonna be coffee that makes your face do that. but it turned out to be fruity and herbaceous and very delicious. Um, so because of that, we took it to them and they're like, yeah, let's, let's do that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember the first time I had it, I think it was at a half acre event actually. And um, I was really shocked because we all know Malort as this extremely bitter liqueur and then coffee itself is inherently bitter as well. And so, to see the end product come out very, very fruity and that floral kind of aspects that you do get in Malort, but is immediately drowned out by all the bitter aftertaste. It was kind of cool to see all that shine through. And did that just come about in one test of, you know, trying it out or were there, was there a period where it took to get that kind of right? Yeah, so we have kind of like a spec that is kind of our starting point for those projects. And, you know, it inherent like from the get go, it was, uh, we could see that it was good and there was potential. And then from there, you just kind of like dial in that ratio to kind of um, balance having um, that thing you're conditioning with shine through, but also retain it so it tastes like coffee and that it's not overdriven by one thing or the other. Cool. And I know that you also do, when we're talking about cast conditioning, you also do beans that have been aged in spirit barrels too. Um, Did this kind of come about at the same time as the cast conditioning? Because it's a little similar process-wise. And yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I mean, um, so again, that as well... um, Dark Matter started was, you know, I wouldn't say that we were the first to do barrel aging, but probably, you know, to toot our horns, I would say the most successful. Um, they were, they had started barrel aging um, a little bit before I got there. And actually within the first six months of me being there, we had a all staff competition when our staff was a much smaller at the time where we got, I think it was seven or eight like 
10 gallon uh, gin barrels that had had um, half acre pony pills in them. So was, they did gin pony pills, which was a really cool beer. And so we all divided into teams and we're uh, being dark matter, of course, uh, there were no rules. There was like, you could put as much beans in it. You could keep the liquid in. You could dump the liquid out that was left in the barrel. You could use any kind of coffee. You could age it for any amount of time. I think there was a cap of like, you know, six months or something. Um, and so there's, it was just kind of a free for all, just trying to gain knowledge and, you know, interestingly enough, all the teams took different tacks at it. And then we had a group of uh, industry chefs and bartenders and coffee people serve as the judges. And then we got to roast it however we wanted to. So it's just, um, just pure experimentation. Um, and uh, my team, <laughs> me and Will Etter, who's now in um, Seattle, we, we won the competition and he became the barrel manager, at, our first barrel aged manager at the time. And so uh, I think a lot was learned in those early days. And I think the process has become uh, a little bit more streamlined and we know what works with what and uh, what sort of beans react well with certain barrels and not. So it's become a bit more of a science. Uh, but yeah, always fun though. Mm -hmm. The uh, experimentation of trying new things out is really kind of interesting. And I think it's one of these things that makes dark matter really kind of unique in a world of coffee and coffee roasting, which can be a little more traditional and somewhat like conservative historically. And I do want to like, <clears throat> I do want to talk about that uh, shortly, uh, but I want to talk about the beer that fucked itself. Yes. And that's, that's what I'm drinking. And so um, this is the Petro from uh, More Brewing uh, described on the label as an Imperial Stout aged in bourbon barrels for two years infused with dark matter coffee that had been conditioned on Rada, Rada being the base beer. Um, this is a pretty involved story, though, that is more than just that uh, clusterfuck of a sentence. Can yeah. you uh, can you explain it and kind of lay out how, uh, how you worked with Eric Padilla and the process here? Yeah, and so um, uh, to start off, I love those guys, you know, uh, definitely a newer relationship compared to a lot of the other ones that um, had been established, um, but have known Eric for a really long time uh, and did a, you know, he reached out to me when he was uh, still at Corridor and we did a beer together there before he moved to Moore. Um, but yeah, I'm those guys are some of the most open-minded there are and definitely um, are looking to us for a lot of guidance as far as the coffee goes and even um, extraction method. And so we've been, um, it's been a fun partnership in uh, trying to figure out new ways and different ways of doing things. And um, the basically the thing we did with uh, 
that Petro is something I've wanted to do for a long time, but logistically it just doesn't, hasn't made sense. And that is um, having a barrel from the beer um, that it's going to go into uh, barrel aging it and then putting it back into that same beer. And traditionally I thought of it as being uh, a process that would uh, take a long time. So we figured out a way to do that by, um, by our conditioning program. And in that he emptied uh, the Rada barrel and then put it into the bright tank and brought us some of the liquid. And we in turn took that beer and conditioned the coffee with that beer, which takes um, about a week, roasted it, and then it needs the rest and then brewed it at like, um, we call it mock espresso. It's, it's just this insane strength uh, coffee. It's probably six to eight times the strength of a normal cup of coffee. Um, just gnarly stuff. If you get it on your skin, it like, it makes, gives you goosebumps because there's so much caffeine in it. Um, and then, so we gave them the kegs back, they shot it into the bright tank and then packaged it. Um, so definitely I had been wanting to take a beer, like the barrel aged version of something and then put it back into itself like that for a long time. And so, um, them leaving a barrel aged beer and taking up a bright tank for two to three weeks so that we could do that part of it, um, to make that project work was, uh, somewhat crazy. Yeah. It's, uh, def, you know, as we kind of talk about with, uh, barrel aged beers like this, there's a lot of time intensity that's involved in making them. And, um, you know, apart from just all the specialty ingredients that go in, go, go into them, time and space are also variables in this as well. So it's definitely like a huge nod that, they want to kind of go through all the motions of what you would like to do uh, in in this process. The final product is uh, very, very incredible, if I must say. Um, I'm normally not a drinker of 15% beers, <laughs> but this is fantastic in terms of the how the mature sort of like roast and coffee profile becomes almost like... Uh, peanut bit brittly like it it there's so many so many different flavors that come together and it's uh now that it's kind of been sitting out and open for a little bit it gets uh when it loses the carbonation and becomes kind of like fortified and is just like this sweet still liquid it's really really fun yeah yeah it's it's pretty unique and i think you know the stuff they've been doing with their barrel aging program is top notch and uh, it's just a super pleasure to work with Eric. And then, you know, I've become friends with some of the other guys over there. Um, Steven, their, their general manager is a just standout dude. And it's just fun to, you know, uh, have those relationships and be able to build upon them. I mean, it's, it's the reason to do these sort of things. And one of the greatest pleasures in, uh, my professional life. Uh, absolutely. And 
now you also have uh, different yeast experiments and hopping experiments as well. So what's kind of uh, uh, involved in making like a hopped coffee and I mean, this is an infrastructure experiment. There's there's a lot that goes into it. Um, how did that tell us about the genesis of of that? Um, yeah, so um, it was it was something that was starting to be kind of fiddled with um, uh, by uh, ourselves and um, our producer. Uh, Finga San Geronimo in Guatemala, um, around the time I, I started, um, he was starting to do some wine yeast experiments and had done, um, starting to use cocoa mucilage as an additional sugar source during fermentation. Um, so I think there's a little bit of background that is necessarily necessary to really understand what I'm going to talk about. And, um, the main part is that coffee is fermented, um, which most people wouldn't realize. Uh, and it's not fermentation for the sake of producing alcohol. It's fermentation for the sake of um, washing the mucilage, aka sugar, off of the skin of the bean so that it can be, um, so it's cleaned and can be dried. Um, if all that sugar were left on there, all sorts of wild yeast and bacteria and nasty stuff would eat away at it and would be soaked into the porous bean and would basically make it rotten. Um, so it's a way to make it stable so that it can be dried and stored and then shipped all over the world and then roasted. Um, so green coffee is typically stable for, you know, the goal is for a year or less. Um, certain beans we found are can be um, st- st- taste fresher longer, but uh, you know, kind of the standard is a year or less. And then obviously roasted coffee is way less than that and that you want to drink it as fresh as possible. You know, some say two weeks, some say a month. It just depends on what, what you're talking about. Nonetheless, um, the whole goal was to um, kind of increase and um, expand the that experimentation and take it on a whole new bet and having the beer background that I do, we decided to start experimenting with, uh, beer yeasts and hops. Um, so it sounds pretty simple. Okay. You take some yeast and then you put it in and, um, and then there you go. But we're talking about a farm on a volcano in a super three hours from Guatemala city in a remote part of, um, the country. So the logistics of getting the yeast there were somewhat problematic. So to start, we would take, um, dry yeast, like 500 gram bricks that you would use to ferment, say 10 barrels of beer, uh, and bring those down. Um, so the first part was getting, the proper amount of yeast to have a, a successful fermentation. Um, I feel like when, when we first started, it was um, using smack packs and trying to um, do it that way. And I, I just feel like there wasn't enough yeast to it actually having a, 
the desired effect. And so um, in that from in that experimentation and fermentation, we definitely tried to hone in on what was happening, how much was being used, the for you know signs of fermentation um, and just getting good metrics of the actual project. So um, then last year, not this past harvest, but the previous one, because this year we obviously weren't able to go to Guatemala, um, but the, the previous um, harvest was the pinnacle thus far in that we were able to collaborate with Omega yeast and take their liquid pure pitchable yeast down and uh, use different um, varieties of yeast that aren't available in dry yeast form uh, and use those to, to ferment with. And we, I, I feel like we had really extraordinary results. And, um, and on the hop side, it was just like, how much hops should we use? When we first started doing it, it was like, oh, well, we'll use 10 pounds of hops. And at the height, uh, there was one batch, we put 88 pounds of hops in and during fermentation. And that was uh, pretty, turned out to be a pretty wild coffee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, kind of through all this experimentation and trying new methods of roasting coffee and presenting coffee in a new way, Dark Matter is kind of breaking this mold of the conservative, conservative nature of the coffee roasting industry um, and pushing it in a more progressive way. What is kind of the drive that pushes Dark Matter to do this? Is it inherent in the owners and the staff who works there? Or is there something larger at play? I mean, I think that's what you're saying is, is as large as it gets is like if the owner, AKA um, Jesse, he has to be insanely involved in, I mean, he's spearheading it because it's, you know, it's his company and reputation on the line. And it is, you know, Dark Matter has always been really punk rock and uh, very open to, uh, you know, the cultural and uh, never fitting within uh, that box. And I think that there is a part of it that, um, the, uh, what would you say? The, the status quo says what we're doing is, is bad. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's bad for coffee and that it's, you know, it's not a clean cup and all these things. And I think that kind of just drives it for, forward even further. Um, cause it's kind of like, fuck you. Like how, like your conception of what coffee is, isn't necessarily, um, always right. There, there is a place for a beautifully um, produced cup of washed coffee from wherever in the world and a be beautiful natural or whatever. But I think um, in that there's also room for other things. And we're not trying to present these things as they are the others. So I, there's no, there's no smoke and mirrors. It is what it is. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, why this punk rock attitude towards coffee? What, you know, what drives everyone who works there and the owner to feel like taking 
something that is so established and has these kind of refined boundaries and just breaking those molds. What is, there's certainly a drive, not only behind the owner, but everyone who works there as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's for sure a culture and, you know, I think it's, it's, it's the culture of the company where we're not people that are, you know, um, you're, everybody is kind of quirky and an outsider in the sense that we're all um, very different and somehow get along. And it's just a very um, interesting culture. And, you know, the, the company is founded on um, focus on the arts and collaboration with musicians and with street artists and, you know, now breweries and just, it's, it's about moving forward in progress and um, never like getting used, never sitting on your laurels and getting used to what you have. There's always more Um, and there's more to give. There's more to gain. Yeah. I think, you know, when people think of coffee, they don't really think of coffee roasters. The first thing they think of is the coffee shop. You know, they think of Starbucks or, um, you know, another big chain and typically their, their variety and their coffee, they see it through the drinks that they drink, you know, a, a specific coffee shop will have a specific flavored drink. And so that's how people interpret coffee in different ways. It's not necessarily through the roasting method. Um, and so I think, you know, looking at dark matter and not only the ways in which they roast coffee, but also in the different ways that you condition the coffee with beers and hops and different ways, that's driving the industry to push forward. And, you know, are you seeing other roasters follow in your footsteps now after taking that jump inward? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, there's been quite a few others that have uh, barely the bear, the now barrel age coffee. Um, there are other people I've, um, had the, been fortunate enough to go to San Diego, um, and participate in the carnival of caffeination put on by modern times. And that's, uh, a really fun event. And so it's kind of a summit of different uh brewers and coffee roasters i think they're you know uh 20 to 30 brewers and eight to ten roasters that are involved and we do a coffee cupping cupping the one day and then there's a whole basically seminar where everybody comes together and um you have speakers i have spoken on our coffee fermentation at that event and um it's basically just everybody trying to gain more knowledge and make better coffee beers and understand coffee better. And then the, the roasters to understand beer better. Um, and I think that, you know, that was a place where I've seen, you know, modern times did some hop experiments where they basically took coffee and, put hops in some water or some liquid and basically infused it like we do our cast conditioning um, with some pretty good results. It was pretty interesting. Uh, just definitely a different method than we've used, but it definitely, uh, you know, I think 
I would be amiss to say we didn't inspire some of that at that point in time. Um, I don't think it's ever going to become gangbusters or any sort of industry norm. Um, but you know, if we cause other people to think about coffee differently and approach it differently and maybe find a flavor, um, that, you know, enjoy or respect coffee in a different way. I don't know. Then I think it's a, a pretty cool thing. That uh, coffee, that caffeination <laughs> symposium sounds like like a fucking crazy time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there are definitely some wild nights in San Diego during those couple years of doing that. I want to talk a little bit about where dark matter sources its beans from and how that's kind of changed over time. And let's start with that, like you know, when dark matter was starting versus now, you know, are the suppliers different? Uh, and yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yes, definitely. It's a very, very, very different story from beginning to now. Um, in the beginning, um, when they were, you know, first starting to um, roast above Star Lounge and toll roasting down at Bridgeport Coffee, in the early days, um, the accessibility to that coffee was um, very different. You know, all our all our purchasing now is based on relationships. Um, and at that point, like most most roasters, um, are buying their coffee from uh, importers, distributors, that sort of thing, um, and it's it makes sense because there's a lot of logistics to get that coffee from point A to point B. There's a a hundred points in between uh, and a lot of places where things can go wrong. You're talking about an international product um, and, you know, governments that might not be uh, as up and up as ours sometimes. I I don't know if you'd call our government up and up, but... um, Anyway, uh, so yeah, so you, you start off there and then, you know, luckily, you know, uh, Jesse and Aaron had that relationship with Mike down at Bridgeport and he was actually um, able, he was importing his own coffee from El Salvador, which was um, some of the coffee that they were using. So they saw that model and that it was able to work and even on a small scale such as his. Um, so yeah, so, um, over time, uh, they met, uh, our producer, our producer in El Salvador, Federico Pacas, um, via the, uh, specialty coffee association, they started texting back and forth and they went down and, um, started that relationship and it's, you know, stronger than ever. And, uh, He's a great guy and he has great coffee. I've been down to El Salvador. Uh, the difference with uh, his coffee versus um, Guatemala is he has his farms on kind of all over the place um, surrounding San Salvador. And then his mill is somewhat central um, where the coffee is pr- produced or, you know, where the coffee goes to be fermented 
and um, stored and all that stuff. Uh, whereas Guatemala, it's all the farm is all on the side of um, the volcano Atitlan, and then you go straight down the mountain to the mill. Um, but kind of a funny story of um, our, our Guatemala producer is that that was a, a chance happenstance meeting. Um, uh, George, our, our producers down in Guatemala, they also um, make cheese and dairy products and they were coming to the U.S. to um, uh, tour if, um, tour some cheese producers in Wisconsin and asked one of the producers where they should get go to get coffee in Chicago. And they told them Star Lounge. And it was in the middle of the winter and uh, Jesse was out front shoveling the snow and making sure that the sidewalk was clear. And they walked up and... Uh, hit it off and they were planning on going to a trip down to the Atitlan region on the other side of the, there's a huge crater lake called um, Lake Atitlan and they were going to visit some people on the other side of the lake and then ended up going to the farm at the end of their visit that time. And it just um, snowballed from there. So it's, it's all very relationship based. Um, we have from time to time bought some, uh, coffee from Colombia that is via importers and distributors, but almost every farm that we've bought from someone from uh, our roastery has went there and been at the farm and cupped coffee at the farm and stuff like that. That's a that's an incredible story uh, on so many levels of uh, both kind of happenstance and also about how not dissimilar all these industries are as far as like uh, the dairy industry and the, and, you know, coffee and even the beer world too. When you look at like so many breweries from uh, like post-World War II, like they're all like repurposed dairy. Um, yeah. So there's like, a, there's just so many different kind of correlations here that, that occur. That's really interesting. Um, and so now over time you've been able to put you've been able to put equipment into these uh coffee producers facilities as well is that correct no i mean we just it's um it's it's more just uh having a really close relationship and going down there multiple times a year and seeing what um they are planning on producing and um what our needs are and what the market is like there's just it's just about collaboration of um what we're gonna buy and kind of what their needs are and what our needs are and but yeah no there's really no um really a equipment we've um given them we definitely well i mean to the extent that we've inspired them like so Guatemala is a water mill. So there's, so we're getting a little bit more technical here, but um, um, there, so because of the way the farm is laid out in Guatemala on the side of um, the volcano at Tilan, there's the huge giant crater lake 
that's a mile high lake on the other side of the volcano. And that water seeps through the volcano and down these streams and stuff um, into Finca San Geronimo. The entire farm is powered hydroelectrically. Um, they have these huge turbines that um, create all the all the power that they they use, and you know, I believe give some back to the grid. Um, because of that, they also have all this water to be able to process the coffee that way. So um, when the coffee comes down off the mountain, it goes into this huge vat that basically it's the beginning of the processing. So anything that floats is bad cherries and it goes over the side. Anything that sinks goes up through a siphon and then travels down through what's called the depulper. So it's basically just tearing the skin off of the, um, off of the coffee bean, leaving behind the mucilage. And then um, that travels down through a stream and into the fermentation tank. And that's the point in which we would, um, where fermentation would naturally occur or when we're there um, freaking it out with beer or wine or hops, um, yeast or hops. And uh, then once it's done fermenting, it travels down this little channel um, to the drying pads. And in that process, there are still some of um, the coffee beans that are lighter and those will float in this channel. And then those are classified another way. And the, the better beans will sink in this. I mean, it's, it's long. It's hundreds of maybe a hundred yards. It's pretty far um, until it gets put out in the patio to be dried. So um it's a pretty unique, it's a pretty unique process, but, um, for our, for our experimentation, um, we want as much sugar as possible. And when you're milling it and it's going through all this water, it's leaching all the sugar out of the mucilage going into the fermentation tank. So, um, that inspired them to get a dry pulper. And all that does is, so it goes, instead of going through the water channels, it goes through this other, um process that rips the skin off but then it basically um you know like a grain uh grain elevator just has a it gets brought up to the fermentation tank with all that sugar and mucilage attached and it's nice and sticky and sloppy and then you add a little bit of water to you know make it into a stew and then you add the yeast so we've definitely um helped change that processing and change um, the way they do their honey processed coffee, I think a little bit in, in part to our needs and wants and things like that. Yeah, I think, you know, to paint a little visual for, uh, have you been down to the, the sourcing facilities down that way? Um, I mean, I've, I've been to um, El Salvador one time and I've went down for, uh our experimentations the last well four years prior to this year's harvest which happened a month or two ago which obviously mm -hmm. um we did not go down to we had to we had to mail them hops and yeast mm -hmm. um which was 
pretty sad. But yes, I've I've been to Guatemala four times. Yeah, I, I guess I kind of wanted to paint a picture for people who are a little unfamiliar with not only just the regions where coffee is grown, but specifically where you source your coffee. Because this side of Guatemala is very interesting. It's very lush. It's tropical. It's jungle. It's um, humid as fuck <laughs> yeah. all the time. Um, and I guess, you know, just to paint a picture for people, what this environment is like, where you're sourcing your beans from. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously I could speak a little bit, uh, more to Guatemala. Um, it's, it's a very unique region, um, in there, in that area and just in the, in the world in general. Um, it is, uh, it's about three hours, I would say Northwest of I might, I can never remember like the direction, uh, in Guatemala, but it's, it's in an area called the ring of fire. Um, there's a string of a bunch of volcanoes that, um, kind of surround Guatemala city. And um, Atitlan is one of them. There's a, a somewhat famous volcano in the region called Fuego that just erupted, uh, I think like a year ago. Um, it was not terrible, but it was not good. Um, but you, when, when you're standing at the farm, you can see Fuego and I can never pronounce the other volcano that's next to it. And I going to get uh, made fun of for not remembering but um you can see fuego in the morning it's puffing we've went out onto atitlan um to watch the sunrise and it it rises behind those volcanoes um i'll text you guys some of the pictures it's one of the most stunning um uh sites you'll ever see but it's the most beautiful place i've ever been it's um uh and the farm in general is um, truly remarkable and unique in their their care for the land and the way they um, produce their coffee and their um, their farming practices. Um, they use no pesticides or herbicides. Um, they've created these natural um, ways. They they use these funguses and these tiny um, wasps uh, to get rid of coffee borers, which are little insects that get into the coffee and to treat arroyo, uh, which is uh, rust. Um, and they compost insane amounts of compost. It's these giant mountains of compost and the way they strategically plant things and treat the um the ground cover and just everything is thought of and thought out and revisited and tweaked and um just the the care for the land and the care for what they do and where they are is is remarkable um there's also it's very cool because the amount of <laughs> strangely enough the amount of birds the kinds of birds and the indigenous birds in that region the number that are only found in that area of of the world is um it's it's insane they have like 
almost more like, I don't know, hundreds more types of birds than we have in the United States. Yeah, no, it's definitely, um, it's a very fragile region and coffee also grows in a very fragile climate. So, you know, to hear, you know, the people within that region trying to take care of it in the best way that they can and maintaining these natural processes to uh, continue production of something that is thousands of years old, it's, you know, admirable to say the least. Um, And I think, you know, that's something people need to be more aware of when we talk about coffee and the fragility of how our climate is interacting with the growing areas. Yeah, and so I, that makes me think of a uh, of a point of uh, so one time we were usually when I go to the farm we stay at that farm the whole time but we went on a trip and drove to Lake Atilan and not very far from where their farm is going towards the lake there's a a farm that sells to Starbucks and seeing the terraced out coffee and no shade cover and just the complete opposite um, process in which they um, they practice their farming is it's it's mind boggling. Um, you can produce more, your yield is higher, and all this stuff for a certain amount of time, but you're just totally devastating the land. And um, I don't know it is very glaring like being in that place and seeing the other the the ways that are most coffee is produced is it's makes it even more admirable absolutely and you know i think this kind of brings up a unique conversation of when we talk about um the distinction between fair trade and direct trade and yeah. you know For sure. fair trade is a is an organization and it is, I, you know, it's got its merits and I'm not going to completely shit on it, but it also, um, it's more about marketing than it is about helping the people that are actually producing the coffee. Um, the trickle down effect, it, it's, it's kind of like um, that, <laughs> it is that trickle down effect of, oh yeah, we give we pay this much for the coffee, but then once you take out all the fees and the amount that actually goes to the farm, it's very deceiving and misleading. All the coffee that we buy, we, we send a wire straight to the goddamn farm. You know, we pay for all the logistics that takes it to go from there up to us. Um, and that's a significant amount of money. And, you know, our coffee isn't cheap, but it's worth it to be able to like, have that sort of um, stability and traceability and consistency and that we are good because we know what we did and our farmer knows that they can count on what they're going to get. And there's not any sort of uncertainty whether we're going to be back or how much we're going to buy and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I, you know, you bring up a good uh, a good word, stability. You know, it's not just stability for you; it's stability for the farmers and you know everyone in between. And if again, it goes back to that conversation of we want to maintain this delicate ecosystem that coffee grows in. I think um, not only looking after the environment, but the people in which uh, 
we need to help curate this product and bring it to, you know, the global market, we need to take care of every little step. And it's rare, if not almost impossible to find any other companies doing that, at least to my knowledge, um, with such a delicate product. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's only becoming more and more important with global warming. You know, the, the harvest in Guatemala was like almost a month ended almost a month later than it normally does this year. And there are so many telltale signs that are, um, can almost, there's no way not to trace back to global warming and climate change. And these people take this seriously and it's their livelihood. And, you know, all these, all these people we work with, they're, they're, working around the clock and thinking about how they can change their practices to deal with higher winds and more rain in the rainy season and drier dries in the dry season and which varieties are going to be able to produce and thrive and also make a good cup of coffee. There's just so many factors involved. And another thing that most people don't realize is once you plant a coffee uh coffee tree it takes four to five years before you actually can use the cherry that comes off of it so you have to be so strategic i mean can you think about having something and rotating a crop that you have to be five years ahead of where you're thinking right now i mean it's it's almost mind-boggling yeah no it is it's a lot like wine too and it's just as delicate uh grapes are just as delicate with where they grow and you know, we can tack Lambic onto here as well. It's in, in danger of, you know, not the yeast not being able to survive in its current climate for, you know, in the near future. Yeah, so, uh, I said, yeah, very good point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's things that all of our listeners, especially, you know, these are things we enjoy and, you know, it, I can't hammer home enough how important it is to take these things seriously and kind of, try and find a way to change um, our current trajectory. And just to tack on to this topic, let's talk about the fires. Um, You know, at this point, um, I read an article yesterday, over 628 hectares of forest fires have ravaged the area in which you get your coffee from. And not to say this is a direct um, implication from climate change, but forest fires are certainly something we're seeing more of as climate change continues to um, unfold in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's very, very tough. Uh, It's, you know, I mean, it's the dry season, but would it be as dry as it is now? Like, who knows? And, you know, it's just super unfortunate that um, it's unfolding at the time that it is. And, you know, it's suspected that it was illegal loggers that somehow set the fire and, you know, being, a, you know, we take things for granted. You know, we don't, you don't hear about illegal loggers in the United States. And it's just, it's a totally different, you can't even understand how different the landscape and the culture and um, the, the roadblocks are being in that place. It's like they have this huge farm 
and there's a huge forest fire in the, the speed in which resources become available is not the same. Um, so it's, it's, you know, things seem to be getting better, but you know, it's day by day. Um, and I don't know, we, we're beyond grateful for everybody that has chosen to, um, help and donate to, um, the cause of helping them eradicate this fire. And so going back to um, our previous conversation, best case scenario, if they have four to five years before their coffee will be grow, will grow again, if it devastates the farm, but because of the way they grow it and because of their care and um, having crop cover and uh having it shade shaded and all of those things there's there's their way of practice their way of farming is gone because it's going to take even longer for those you know 30 year old trees to grow you know so there's just it 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 kind of snowballs the importance and the urgency of this to you know uh to get figured, not figured out, but get put out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think, um, I think this sheds a light on the importance of people supporting local businesses that know where they're sourcing their ingredients from and who are environmentally conscious and who are taking the appropriate steps to try and mitigate um, the amount of damage that, you know, just modern commercialism does take on, on our global ecosystem. So, um, you know, for everyone listening, like dark matter, obviously, as you've heard, does a great job of doing that. And I think, you know, it's just kind of on us as consumers to know where we're getting our products from. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And it's just to add to that point, it's kind of a catch 22 as well, because, you know, it would be really easy and convenient to slap a label on our bags and say, we do this and we're Rainforest Alliance and we're this and that. And that's going back to um, my earlier talk about being punk rock. That's not what we do. We're not going to just self promote for the sake of jerking ourselves off. Like it's, we do it because we want to do it. And, you know, you're going to hear about us doing it because we're going to tell you not because you're going to see a sticker on our bag. Um, we want to have these conversations and these crucial conversations about what we are and why we do it. Um, and we want to be engaged and we want to have people that our customers be engaged and understand fully and be educated as to why um, these things are important and why we do them. Um, there's so much, there's a very su superficial way of doing it, but I think that there's no, um, there needs to be some depth and some, some real, uh, right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's, but that also kind of comes full circle and 
you know, really steeps the importance of the third space. And that is like the coffee shops and the places where there actually is an opportunity for a barista or a bartender or someone that works in that place that works with that like kind of consumer end product to actually be the ed educator and to be the advocate and to be the steward of the of the initiatives of the producers and the suppliers. Yeah, it's a very, um, very, very good point. I mean, our baristas are the front line and they are the people that are interacting and um, spreading that knowledge. And, you know, education is very important and training and education is very important in our company. So um, there's no, there's no sense doing it if we're not, equipping them with the, the skills and the knowledge to um, convey those things. Because obviously um, providing good customer service and a great cup of coffee and consistency is one thing, but you know, in parallel is that, that side of it. Mm -hmm. um, so as a kind of parting here with our, with our listeners, uh, the fun, the GoFundMe fundraiser link is going to be in the episode notes for folks that are listening now that they can go visit it and uh, and donate to the uh, initiative. Are there other ways that people uh, can kind of get involved and learn? Are there some resources that we can direct people to or that they can seek out on their own? Um, I I think uh, via that link there are some uh, some organizations listed that. Um, our full-time, you know, uh, organizations that help in the region and help um, in the cause in general all the time. So I think they're listed there. Um, and uh, if you ever have any questions or concerns or, you know, any, want any information, you're always welcome to email Dark Matter, stop by the mothership. Um, somebody is always willing to talk to you probably more than you want about any of these things. And uh, I am at the mothership early mornings till the mid afternoon, helping make sure the coffee gets produced and out the door. So say, just say, Hey, Noah, I listened to the episode and I want to chat and be more than happy to come bend your ear. Awesome. Well, Noah, thank you so much for joining us on Heavy Hops. It was a it was a pleasure having you, and we're looking forward to stopping by the mothership to see you for a continuation of this conversation. Awesome. It was a complete honor. 